Hey guys, and welcome to the Abundance Alchemist podcast. I'm Caitlin Dorsey, an Abundance Alchemist, animal lover, trauma survivor to thriver, mindset expert, self-love junkie, and author. This is the place to be to grab those powerful tools, ideas, and inspiration to make lasting changes in yourself and your life. No more waiting, my friends, because it's time to show up unapologetically, radiate that confidence, and create a life you absolutely love. Time to buckle up and dive on in. Hello, my high-vibing friends. I am so excited. You guys are here on the Abundance Alchemist podcast with me today. I have a very exciting guest who I'm super stoked to introduce. Um, his name is Ben Ahrens. Am I saying that right? Close. It's Aaron's. Aaron's. Okay. I was close. You got it. You got it. <laughs> um, so Ben is passionate about healing, recovery, and human optimization, and how people can take control of their own mental and physical health in the simplest of ways by using the most sophisticated tools they already possess, the human brain. Um Ben has been a high-performance athlete as well as chronically ill and bedbound for years on end. After his miraculous recovery, he traveled the globe and worked for eight years as an executive vice president of innovative medicine, seeking out and studying with the best medical, neuroscience, and human performance experts. Ben spent every waking moment for the past two decades exploring the boundaries of our potential, and what he found is astonishing. When you learn to um, assess the control panel of your mind, the... Uh, potential for healing is limitless and the best part everyone can tap into it and ben is here to tell us how we can do that today so welcome ben thank you so much for having me i'm really excited to be here absolutely um so i kind of just want to start of having you tell us your story i listened to one of your ted talks you sent me and i was blown away so i'd love for you kind of just to share a little bit about you yeah sure so you know in this uh, TED Talk you're referring to, mm-hmm. I kind of gave a little bit of a background myself, really active, healthy individual, was into health and fitness and athletics, mm-hmm. a surfer traveling around the world. And in my mid-20s, I got kind of stopped in my tracks where all of a sudden I lost my health. It started going downhill very quickly, took a long time to figure out what the problem really was, but it turned out to be Lyme disease as basically one component, uh, late stage neurological Lyme disease, yeah. meaning that this bacterial infection had made its way into the nervous system and basically short circuited the system and produced a whole bunch of inflammatory responses that sort of kept me bedbound for the better part of three years, wow. during which time I was experiencing just a lot of physical pain, brain fog, absolute exhaustion, Mm -hmm. and uh, jumping from one specialist to the next, as people commonly do Mm -hmm. who struggle with these types of chronic illnesses. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. That um, I can't even imagine, right? Like you're just stopped in your tracks and now your whole life is changing. And I think um, that people deal with this on a lot lower scale. We just get in kind of this idea of like... um, anxiety or more like kind of the mental health crippling back or things that occur. Um, but seeing it on both like the mental and the physical, like you said, where it's kind of in your nervous system, it's in, you know, your neurological processes and all these different things is, um, substantial. Yeah. And of course, you know, like you said, one, one leads to the other and of Mm -hmm. course, you know, depression and anxiety followed (laughs) shortly thereafter. And, um, what started to really shift was when I turned my attention toward the brain Mm -hmm. and how the brain is kind of modulating all of these different systems and cells in the body. And when it's functioning properly or perfectly, you know, the brain Mm -hmm. is really like this conductor of an orchestra. There's trillions of reactions taking place in the human body per second Mm -hmm. that have to be coordinated fairly precisely in order for us to even be here. Mm -hmm. And this is something that obviously we can't with our conscious mind, um, 
uh, control because it would just be far too much to manage. So the brain does this brilliant job of coordinating all of these different systems and, and functions. But sometimes when it's been, when we've been ill for a long period of time or experienced a lot of stress or even an adverse childhood experience, these types of traumas and illness and anxiety that persist can ultimately cause the brain to maladapt in a certain way. And this has now been shown to actually change the structure and the function of the brain in such a way where it's no longer, you know, coordinating or conducting the orchestra in that same way. Now things are a little bit out of tune. They don't sound right. It doesn't feel right. Symptoms are popping up. And all the while, as the body is trying to mount its its defenses, you know, its stress response to pull things back into alignment, it's draining the brain of key resources and metabolites, things like dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, these chemicals that we know make us feel good. So when I started to learn about this in a way, it was kind of a relief because I started to learn that, okay, you know, my anxiety, my depression, this, this stuff that I'm feeling isn't necessarily saying anything bad about me or that I did something mm-hmm. wrong. It's actually just, you know, chemicals in my system. It's just something or the lack of those chemicals that are making it difficult, if not impossible in this moment for me to tap into that, that light feeling that I know is there somewhere, but I'm just not able to experience it right now. Yeah. And I think that's a huge point, right? Like we go to, especially nowadays, like, you you know, you're touching on that stress idea and how much it's increased over the years. We are getting more and more busier. There's more and more things pulling at us. Um, And a lot of times we didn't really know how stress affected us, especially like biologically. When we look at the science of it years ago, we had no idea. And now we know that it's kind of like has been labeled like the silent slow killer, right? Because it's, it does, it takes away and it does break down how our body is functioning. And then we start to see a lot more of where we are looking in other places to get like you said, kind of those, we're not understanding why we can't feel the same that we used to feel. We don't know why we can't feel the happiness. And so we start to look in either replacing those chemicals through substance abuse or, you know, different addictions in different ways to, um, to try to feel all right. And we do think a lot of times that something is wrong with us. And I think that's a huge point that you hit on. Yeah. You know, it's, it's kind of, um, this sort of analogy I remember came to mind when I was feeling that way. And I was, I was trying to tap back into those good feelings. And Mm -hmm. in some cases, like you mentioned, you know, addiction, things like that. So for me, like coffee was one thing at first I was like, you know, maybe I just need more coffee. Maybe that will, Mm -hmm. you know, bring the energy back or the vibrance or turn the lights back on. Mm -hmm. And what I came to realize after it stopped working and it actually drove me further in the direction of adrenal fatigue, um, not uh, surprisingly, I guess, in retrospect, um, is that that experience is, is kind of like there's there's two ways we can go about getting it that experience of lightness that good mm-hmm. feeling that abundance you know that that we in some level know is always there but we sometimes lose access to it sure so imagine for a moment for the people listening imagine for a moment that um, there's a light bulb and you're trying to you know feel or experience or see more brightness by turning up the light bulb turning that knob up so that it keeps getting brighter and brighter and brighter that would be like adding more sugar, more caffeine, you know, more, you know, vigilant activities to the system. Um, And at a certain point, of course, that light bulb is going to exceed its capacity and it's going to burn out. Mm -hmm. Now imagine that unbeknownst to you, you're actually wearing 10 pairs of sunglasses. 
So an alternate way to experience that brightness would be rather than turning up the light until it burns out, Mm -hmm. start one by one removing those layers of shades, right? Mm -hmm. So now you can experience the brightness that's always been there. And similarly here, you know, I draw that analogy to say that even if you're feeling this way, if you're feeling anxious or stuck or depressed, your brain and body, here's the silver lining, your brain and body are designed for abundance. They are designed to to produce these chemicals, the dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, and and, and endorphins. Mm -hmm. And it's only when we have these other things coming in from the outside, whether, you know, ongoing stress responses, traumatic events, or things that we're subconsciously perpetuating and compounding in the mind, um, that these can interfere with the body's natural process to produce all of those feel-good chemicals. Mm -hmm. But the brilliant part is that once you become aware of this, you can breathe a sigh of relief, you know, like I did saying, oh, wow, you know, maybe it's not, it's not me. It's not a problem with me. This is actually just a phenomenon of the brain. And now that I know this, and this is the best part, using things like neuroplasticity, we can actually start to change this and we can reconnect with that joy and abundance and health. That's in fact, the natural state of being. Yeah, I absolutely love that. And for our listeners, will you kind of explain what neuroplasticity is? I think it's a big word that can be really scary, but it is pretty simple. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, sure. So, you know, neuroplasticity is basically just the brain's ability to change. Mm Everything that we come in contact with from the thoughts that we think, the foods we eat, the people we meet, literally change the brain on a mm-hmm. structural and functional level. I once heard it said that uh, everyone, probably everyone in the world at this point has a, um, a Tom Cruise neural pathway, meaning, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? Or, or that applies to, you know, any face that someone would, would recognize. Right. Because the brain, in this case, your your eyes are are recognizing patterns. The brain is a pattern recognition machine. And so it's the best facial recognition on the planet still to this date. Mm -hmm. So when we learn someone's face or we learn, you know, to identify an object, and you can see this in early childhood development, they learn to differentiate the circle peg from the square peg from the triangle one. Um, Each time you learn, you know, a certain pattern, in this case, visual pattern, it produces a change in the brain Mm -hmm. that creates a neural pathway associated with that pattern. So that when you see it in the future, your brain can reactivate that pathway. And it's like an identifier. It's a signature for you. You, It makes sense to you. So neuroplasticity is really just that. It's just the, the fact that the brain is changing itself. And this is a radical concept because up until two decades ago, mm-hmm. it was thought that the brain was static. Now, I don't know what their explanation was for how people learn new skills or languages or anything mm-hmm. like that. Um, but for whatever reason, it was thought that the brain was like this just static kind of black box. And we now know that that's completely false. The brain can change itself to learn new faces, new languages. Um, and on the flip side of that, it can also change itself to learn maladaptive responses, mm-hmm. or that's to say to learn to initiate a response in the body that is not necessarily beneficial for us, mm-hmm. but it, it might have been at one time. So in my situation, when I had this acute Lyme infection, which was an acute in- infection at one point, mm-hmm. it might have been warranted. It might have been appropriate for my brain to, to change, to signal my immune system, to react to this so mm-hmm. that it can mount the immune response, produce antibodies and deal with the, with the um, threat. Mm-hmm. But at a certain point, that starts to work against us because that threat, you know, goes under the radar. It 
or even gets worked out of the system. And at that point, I found that my brain was still reacting as if it was there now, right? Mm. It was still stuck in this loop, producing the same antibodies, producing the same inflammatory response that was creating symptoms and also draining the system of energy that I would normally have had mm -hmm. um, to combat this, this pathogen that it had in the past. Mm -hmm. So this is where we need to start to intervene and, and use this neuroplasticity with, with consciousness, with conscious intervention to start to retrain our brain and retrain our body, how to return to homeostasis. Yeah. I love this. Cause this, this really comes into play a lot of times with that. Like you kind of said, the analogy of like, you can't uh, teach an old dog, new tricks, right? We've kind of mm. believed that and it's not true at all. And so um, my background is in mental health counseling and addiction. And so I always go to that idea of like cognitive behavioral therapy, right? Like you're retraining your thought process, you're changing your thoughts. You're basically doing this exact thing. You're working with your brain and changing how you're thinking. And instead of going to those maladaptive patterns of those, um, you know, self-defeating thoughts or self-defeating behaviors, you're teaching yourself new coping skills and enacting those to have a better performance and to have a better life and to feel better about yourself. Um, so I can see where this really becomes important with patterns. And I'm curious, how do you think, or why do you think neuroplasticity is so important when it comes to healing and recovery? I think it's, it's important to note that the, the brain is, is this learning machine mm -hmm. and the same way that it can, it can learn during a time of great stress or illness or injury, it can learn to overprotect you. Mm. Um, it's, essential to retrain it, to let, let our bodies, let our brains know that, you know, thank you for trying to protect me. This is what it evolved to do. It's its natural right. function. So not to become upset with ourselves for being stuck in a loop or whatever it might be, mm -hmm. but to just acknowledge that this is actually your, your, your brain, your body, your immune system have not turned on you. They're actually still working for you. They're really working in your favor. They're just operating based on obsolete information. So neuroplasticity gets to be important here when it comes to retraining our brain, mm -hmm. like teaching ourselves and telling ourselves that actually, you know what, I'm, I'm safe now. You know, I, I'm sure I might not be 100% healthy. I might still be experiencing this fatigue or, or this pain, but through certain things that we can do by redirecting our focus, we can actually start to interrupt that that pattern. So mm -hmm. I always think that, you know, Viktor Frankl said it best that between yep. stimulus and response, there's a space, right? Yep. And in that space is our freedom, our freedom to choose a new response. Mm -hmm. And by choosing a new response, we're retraining and reteaching the brain and the nervous system um, how to relax, how to mm -hmm. calm down, how to even remain calm in the face of discomfort. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, the body starts to come back into homeostasis. It stops producing an overtly or, or outsized stress response. It stops producing excess inflammation that's not really needed to combat this problem anymore. And it starts to settle in this place where homeostasis can, can occur. And we start to actually feel like ourselves again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that. Cause I think, um, a previous episode we were just talking about, we were talking with a medical doctor and um, she was talking about this idea of taking responsibility in your life. And that's exactly kind of what this is, right? Is taking the choice. When you said that there's that space between kind of that stimulus and that reaction, right? You, you are going to have a reaction based on a pattern. However, you do have the choice of how you proceed. And so it really is taking this 
this active stance in your life and choosing of I'm going to be responsible for my life and I'm going to be responsible for feeling better and getting back to that place where I did feel good. Because the truth is we've all been in a place where we did feel good, right? We've all been in a place at a time where we felt good and we have this kind of our brains are incredibly powerful that they don't know the difference between when we're actually having a good time or we're just thinking about having a good time, right? They, they're reacting the same and your body reacts the same. So um, it's powerful kind of in that place of, in, of embracing that kind of, I don't like to say trick with the brain, but kind of that little, little nugget of, of knowing that you can enact these patterns and can enact these neural pathways by just thinking about it and just choosing to think about it. Yeah, that's right. You know, I think Zig Ziglar said the body can't tell the difference between what's real and what's vividly imagined, right? Right. Because when you deeply immerse yourself in something like Mm -hmm. visualization, where you're not just visualizing it, but you're you're actually being there, you're really Mm -hmm. immersed in it, the body will produce the same chemistry. in order, you know, as if it was in that state. And we, we can all try this with like visualizing your favorite food. Mm-hmm. It'll, you know, produce the salivary response. Enzymes will become active to getting ready to receive that food mm-hmm. because we know that these processes are so-called anticipatory, meaning mm-hmm. they don't happen in real time necessarily while we're in the, the, the event or circumstance. They actually happen by mere anticipation of it. Mm-hmm. So the interesting thing is, like you know, you mentioned it's sort of like you can think of it as as a trick. Um, I actually think of it as it's what the brain is doing all the time, because most of the time when, you know, the brain is always um, curating information, it's always going to a certain place. Most of the time, because of the way it evolved um, to protect us, that's its number one job, especially that that region of the brain called the limbic system, it evolved this so-called negativity bias. Mm-hmm. Meaning that it looks for for sticks over carrots. It looks more prominently, and it, it's more aware. We're, we become more aware of things to freak out about, yep. <laughs> things to celebrate, or things to be positive about. And that's strictly because of our our evolutionary brain. So, in a way, the brain is always making up stories. Mm-hmm. It's just that usually it's making up or ruminating on stories that. Um, uh, you know, things that, that cause this stress response. So I think it was uh, Hemingway who, who once said, I've had a lot of worries in my life, most of which never happened. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love that. I know. Cause whenever I, we, um, you know, especially in therapy, we talk about anxiety, there's very different types of anxiety. And also what is anxiety? It's future tripping or thinking about things that haven't actually occurred and yeah. may never occur. So we do get in this place, but you touched on the limbic system and I want to dive a little bit deeper into that. Do you think that is that negative negative bias that you're kind of talking about? Is that kind of the role with the limbic system with, you know, like things such as chronic anxiety, such as depression, such as kind of like in your case, kind of this um, inflammatory condition? Yeah. So, so the limbic system, you know, which is ultimately responsible for our survival mechanisms Mm -hmm. and that's our fight or flight response, what people probably, probably know, um, will become active uh, in accordance when we have a certain threat or, or appropriate threat, it will also become active when there's a perceived threat. So this is where we get into a little bit of territory of um, real versus perceived or virtual aggressors. Mm-hmm. Like we were just talking about, you know, yep. thinking of eating that ice cream will produce the same positive effect in the body. Um, also, like we mentioned, you know, thinking of uh, the argument you had in the past or, you know, the argument you're anticipating having in the future, mm-hmm. those will also uh, change the body into this pre-programmed state. And that's ultimately stemming from, from the limbic system. Now, 
there's this growing field, which has been around since the seventies the called psychoneuroimmunology, which really describes this, this relationship between this region, the, the limbic system and things like the immune system. Mm-hmm. And as they've studied this field, they've expanded the name to psychoneuroendocrine immunology, because now they know it also affects the endocrine system right. and hormone production. And my theory is the more they study this, the longer the name will get because exactly. it's going to affect everything. <laughs> they're just going to find that, that the brain affects everything. Absolutely. Yeah. But these are, these are deeply ingrained conditioned responses. And, um, you know, one, one example to highlight how subconscious these are is a, a experiment that was done with rats where they were given a dextro solution combined with the virus. Mm. And as you would expect, they mounted an immune response. Right. And that was repeated several times during what we know is like acquisition phase or, or conditioning their system yep. to respond that way. Um, and then they were just given the sugar water injection, no traces of any pathogens. Mm -hmm. And of course their immune system mounted the same inflammatory response, Mm -hmm. um, strictly because their brain had learned this region, of the brain had learned that this is the response that you do when you receive this injection, regardless of the fact that it didn't contain any actual real threat to the system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They did a similar, um, study a little bit more based on like the idea of companionship with, um, I believe it was either rats or mice and, um, cocaine and then sugar water. And they watched how the cocaine interacted with in the brain and in the system. And then they watched which one they would go to and watched how the reaction was similar. But then when they introduced another companion, it changed. And so it was kind of interesting to see how, you know, we know that companionship is, and that wanting to be accepted and wanting to be loved is a very basic human need. And so it's kind of interesting to watch how the body can, and the brain can adapt based on the different needs. Mm, I love that. Yeah. I hadn't heard that, that study, you know, I was mm-hmm. familiar with the the first portion of that study that many people are familiar with, which was yep. that, you know, they give the rats in the cage, the choice of regular water versus that laced with cocaine. cocaine. And yep. eventually of course they, they become addicts and kind of OD on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I think one scientist came along and said, Okay, but in this model, your 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 rats are being kept in this cage. Like right. that's a miserable environment. Yep. Um, and then he he I didn't hear that he added companionship. That's interesting. But mm-hmm. the the other variation of the study that I I heard was that they expanded it from a rat cage to a rat park. Yep. Where rat park. They, yep. Right, <laughs> they, they made it like really nice. They put exercise wheels in there and like cheese and everything that the rats would want. Right. And what they found was that they actually you know they would go to the the cocaine water on occasion, but they would never overdo it with that yeah. because yep. they were presumably because they were um, sort of intrinsically, you know, achieving that, that stability. Yeah. Which I think is, is kind of, it very much goes along with what we've been talking about this whole time of, you know, knowing that we can feel good and there are other things to make us feel good. Like, you know, in that case, such as exercise and getting back to that place where our body is making those proper endorphins and we're functioning with our hormones properly. And then, you know, substituting because we're not sure how we got to, that difference, right? Because they were substituting with that cocaine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So how is, when we're going back to this idea of neuroplasticity, there's a lot of different, you know, things of like, yes, we can retrain our brain, but how do we do this? I think a lot of people go to, you know, our thought process, but it goes a lot deeper than that. Like we've been talking about, there's different things that are subconscious that are happening within your body. So how do we really go to this place of like you were talking about with Lyme disease of where you kind of worked yourself out of this, um, inflammatory disease? Yeah. Great question. So I think the first thing to note is that 
when you start to to do these types of practices that I'll describe, you're not using them to change the condition per se, because in the same way that we didn't, no one chose to have fatigue or pain or symptoms in their body. Mm -hmm. um, it similarly would become difficult to say, okay, well, how do I choose, you know, not to do that or not right. to, not to produce that effect. Mm -hmm. So instead we go to uh, kind of take a walk up the stream. You know, we, we go to a higher level of, of the initiation point of those symptoms, which is the stress response. Mm. So what we're doing is when we retrain the brain, we're using it to change the, the stress response, that fight or flight response to a relaxation response, which we know has the downstream effect of homeostasis, of anti-inflammatory uh, anti effects mm -hmm. and of basically, you know, hormonal and chemical stability in the body, which results in natural healing. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to note, which I'm sure your listeners are familiar with this, this concept that health and, and homeostasis really are the body's natural state. Yeah. This is something that, that I was delighted to learn when mm -hmm. I, I studied more of um, European medicine, not so much conventional medicine, but in European biological medicine and mm -hmm. even, even Chinese medicine, of course, they really hold dear to this philosophy that, that health is the natural state. Yeah. And it's only when something comes in, when the, the brain is conditioned in a certain way, or things come in from the outside that pull us off course, that we start to, the body starts to maladapt and produce these outsized stress responses and mm -hmm. results in inflammation and symptoms. So um, it's really all, all about starting with that initiation point, working with the limbic system to get in that gap and choose a new response. And the number one starting point is simply awareness. Mm -hmm. It's it's a knowledge that you have this ability. Um, every person on the planet has a brain that changes. Yep. Um, and then it starts with the awareness of what is triggering you? When, when, is your, when are you realizing that your body is in this hypervigilant state? The next step from there would be to actually exert our our own intention and our actions to get in that space and to choose a new response and that's something we can we can get into as well yeah absolutely I, I i like that you differentiate you know i think i've heard a lot especially with covid how people are saying like you're inviting covid in or you're choosing to have the disease and it, and it's it's a very tough conversation to get into but i like that you kind of touched on that of People are not choosing the idea of pain. Pain comes because there's something else that's occurring within the body, such as you're stressed out about something else and your immune system isn't reacting to a new stimuli or whatever it is that's coming in. Um, but I really like that you hit on that because I think that's a really important piece is we're not choosing to be negative. We're not choosing to be in pain. We're choosing to react to what's coming within. And then we're not choosing the elicited response that we would like. Exactly. Yeah. Not only, of course, are we not choosing, you know, pain or, or negative sure. symptoms, um, but we're also, um, it's also true that the body is doing this in an effort to protect you, mm -hmm. however mislabeled or, or misguided at this moment in time that may be, mm -hmm. it's coming from a good place still. It still actually means that your, your brain and body are intact doing what they're meant to do. Yeah, absolutely. So how is what are some of these things that we would start doing? Cause I, I mean, I think I go immediately to more like the traditional approach of like talk therapy, but there's so many things that again, like we're talking about the subconscious, we're talking about a lot deeper emotions, feelings, the stress response, the biological response within your body. So what are things that we can, our listeners can really start doing that you can step into, you know, this 
neuroplasticity and actually working with changing your brain how you would like to. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things you mentioned already, which is when we talked about the the study with companionship and adding mm-hmm. that, that missing or so-called, you know, missing, missing fundamental element. Right. One of the things is um, to do things to elevate your own mood. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is kind of like sort of setting the foundation, right? Mm-hmm. This is like, um, I call this neuroplasticity primers. These are basically anything that, that gives you a good feeling. And this can be, um, you know, visualization. This can be uh, listening to your favorite music that brings you back to that time when you were on vacation. Uh, this can be going for a walk in nature. So anything that you enjoy is already starting to um, change the the stress response and change the system in a very subtle way by signaling to your brain that it's actually, it has enough. It is in a state of abundance and not scarcity. Because one of the things that really initiates that overactive stress response is when the the brain feels like on a very deep level that it doesn't have enough resources. Right. It's not going to get enough, you know, energy or it's not going to have enough um, feel good chemicals or anything to do, to do what it does. And when it feels like it doesn't have enough, that's when it starts to draw that energy out of other places. So it, it pulls, you know, it suppresses the immune system so mm-hmm. that it can utilize that energy to to have a little bit of, you know, that feel good um, chemistry. So the number one thing is really just this sort of priming or setting the stage for neuroplasticity to work by, you know, uh, doing the daily practices of things that make you feel good. Mm -hmm. The next thing is that, you know, in, in reorigin, which is a, a company I've started to help people retrain their brain specifically around these types of conditions, anxiety, depression, chronic fatigue, and other chronic uh, conditions Mm -hmm. um, is, to start to map out these, these thought loops so that they can understand it's not me, it's my brain. Okay. This isn't strictly psychological. This is a neurological phenomenon. Right. And once I start to understand that I now have the tools to, to use that. So we have people fill out these, these worksheets, which are basically just kind of um, like a behavioral model. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like a, a thought loop where it might start with at the top of the page, you would, you would identify, okay, what is the thing that's, that's triggering you? Or when you have this thought or you experience this symptom, like, um, what, what is that, that initiation, uh, event? Uh, the next step would be like, okay, when you're experiencing that event, what impact is that having on your, on your physiology? Mm-hmm. You know, it, how is that affecting your, your breathing? How is that affecting your posture? Are you tensing? Is it creating tension in the muscles or are you relaxing? And it just prompts you to become aware of these things. Mm-hmm. And then the third step of that sort of, if you think of a triangle is now what is the the behavior or in this case, the maladaptive response um, that takes place when you are feeling the discomfort mm-hmm. because it's, you know, again, to the saying of it's not you, it's your brain, the brain of every living creature on the planet has evolved to want to be biased against discomfort. It's yeah. not surprising. Like we just right. don't like, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Why would we? <laughs> we? We want comfort. So, um, so sometimes what we'll do is when we're feeling these, you know, stress responses, that's when we'll, you know, get into some behavior that in the moment gives us a sense of relief or control, mm-hmm. but in the long run isn't actually helping. So for a lot of people struggling with chronic conditions that, you know, maladaptive behavioral response might look like jumping back on the internet to search for more solutions or learn more and more and more about the condition. And of course, the more you focus on it, the more hypervigilant it's easy to become. Right. So just by understanding that this loop is taking place is, is the kind of first step. 
And the next one would be to remap that pattern Mm -hmm. where that trigger is kind of a neutral event, right? So now no longer is this thing, you know, just inherently negative, but it's just, it just is rather than, than labeling this, you know, symptom as, as pain or giving it a a name or a diagnosis as something Mm -hmm. deleterious to my system. Mm -hmm. We can just see it as information. It's just information coming from the nervous system. And when we do that, we actually start to loosen our grip. That maladaptive response in the body um, can start to relax. We can start to, rather than feeling so agitated when we when we you know feel the symptoms, we can learn to be comfortable in that presence of of mild discomfort. Mm-hmm. And this is where you know paradoxically, it actually starts to shift. So yeah. we start to you know loosen our grip a little bit, and and that stops the perpetuation of those um, stress responses and inflammatory cycles. I love that. I think that process is, is amazing because it really does help you. Like you said, you're going to that first step is being awareness, being, or being aware, you know, awareness of what's going on within your body, what's happening. How are you actually experiencing it? Cause I think often we're like, we get into that discomfort and we're like, this is bad. I'm feeling angry and that's it. Right. Like you just stop. And so instead of really going in and saying, okay, but what does that anger feel like in my body? Where am I noticing that? What does, you know, and then just noticing what you do, like you said, going to that behavior approach. I always go to the feeling approach just because I'm a little biased about feelings, but I love the behaviorist approach too, because there is a behavior that falls, right? It's kind of like that idea of, um, I always go to like cognitive behavioral therapy and dialectic behavioral therapy. There's kind of this idea of like, what comes first? Is it the the thought or is it the emotion? Right. And so same thing when we're looking at, is it, you know, are you having this thought before the behavior? Is there what's kind of occurring? So I really like that approach where you are, and then you are taking it a step further of really remapping and moving into that. And I, I think that too, there's a really important piece that I don't want to glaze over. Have you said kind of you're doing what makes you feel good, but you're making sure that it's not a maladaptive behavior, because I think that's a big piece. Cause right. Like some people will say like taking a drink makes me feel good. Right. Because it takes the pain away or it does something, but that's a maladaptive behavior mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. then you're shutting down what's actually occurring within your body. Then you're not being in that awareness of actually what's occurring to be able to choose a different response. So I think that's really important. And then do I want to say one other thing, um, something that helped me with you know, really, I think, you know, we talk a lot about self-care. We hear a lot about self-care. We hear about the things that you should do to um, make yourself feel better. But the idea of like people kind of push it off. So I always say like my little hack is putting it in your schedule and scheduling a meeting with yourself every day to be able to actually do that, right? Like actually make it a process. Cause it's sometimes I think we do get so busy or we do put ourselves on the back burner but it's a lot easier when it's saying it's a non-negotiable meeting to go on that walk, like you said, or to, you know, do some visualization or do meditation or whatever it is that you're choosing. Yeah. I'm so glad that you bring that up. And especially about, you know, just clarifying around doing things that feel good, which mm-hmm. are really good for you, beneficial for you, as opposed to um, the opposite, which, which again, like, you know, taking a drink or something, if you're feeling stressed out, um, will probably lead to temporary relief, but then it actually can come back stronger. The stress will come back stronger because the underlying issue hasn't been resolved. That that neural connection that that um, forms between the thing that's stressing you out mm-hmm. and the response itself hasn't been changed. And that's that's where the neuroplasticity lies is in actually right. working on that level. So yeah, that's that's really important to point out that these things that make you feel good, um, 
you know, should be, should be natural. They should be like adding that, that second rat for companionship um, or, or walking in nature. And the other point that you brought up, you know, that that's kind of in here is this idea of um, actions that, that are coming from a place of avoidance versus those that are staying Mm -hmm. in contact. Right. And what we ultimately want to do is be able to stay in contact with the Mm -hmm. challenge. So let me just back it up a moment and say that I, I really like what you said about scheduling it, you know, mm-hmm. on your calendar, you know, decide what that thing is you're going to do and then schedule it. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that that we do um, with members at Reorigin is we have this journal. This is like a daily journal that they write in just a few sections in the morning and in the evening. Mm-hmm. And it's really about starting to prompt your brain uh, and prompt the limbic system to think in a different, in a different way. Whereas mm-hmm. normally because of its past evolution and conditioning, it might be like a hammer looking for nails, you know, the limbic system is that threat detection and response mechanism. Mm-hmm. So if left to its own devices, it might look, you know, you, we wake up first thing in the morning and all of a sudden you might find that your attention goes to, you know, oh, there's that meeting I have to prepare for. And, oh, I have to do this. I got to pick up that, you know, all these different things that are sort of cause for anxiety. Mm-hmm. But if you prompt yourself with something like a simple question, like what would make today great? Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden, in an attempt to answer that question, now your limbic system starts to change. Your brain and your focus starts to starts to look for things that will make today great, that will make yeah. you happy. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, it can be something as simple as, you know, I, I, it would be a great day if I went for a beautiful walk in nature, or if I did, you know, ten minutes of yoga, or if right. I, you know, sat with a cup of tea and felt really relaxed and at peace. Mm-hmm. And the great thing is, once you identify what those things are that give you a good feeling, is then you can do what you said. You can go ahead and schedule it. You can make right. sure to do it. Mm-hmm. So now it puts that locus of control in your hands that you've mm-hmm. identified. Okay, I, I know that if I do this thing, it will make that this day that much more you know valuable. It will lead to a good experience, and I have the ability to do that. Yeah. So one third component of that that. Um, we talk about a lot in reorigin is solidifying these new loops, these new behaviors mm. with the science of small wins. Yeah. And that involves basically once you do the thing is to then celebrate the fact that you did it, not celebrate how awesome it was or wasn't or should have been or anything like that, but simply the fact that you did it mm-hmm. because now you've broken the pattern rather than, you know, freak out about that meeting and then go to the meeting stressed out, having not interrupted the pattern. Now you've, you've done something really significant. You've put something on your agenda that is really for you mm-hmm. and that in and of itself is already changing your brain. Yeah. I love that. That's um, to be honest, the, the science of small wins. When I saw that through your program, that was one of the biggest things that kind of drew me to be like, Oh, I want to get Ben on the podcast because mm. I wrote a, um, a blog about it like one of my first, very first blogs about kind of celebrating your daily wins and these small little wins that could be just as simple as like you said, taking a walk or something, because it really does put you in a very different mindset to like you were talking about to go through your day. And it puts you in of like, sometimes we have those days where it's like, you feel like you did all these things and accomplished nothing. And when you have that one thing that you did, that was for you, that made you feel good. And you actually, you stop and celebrate it. That was the really important piece that Ben said, you're celebrating it. Um, it's incredible to see how it shifts your entire day. Like that mindset, that perspective shift is astounding. Yeah. And when you do this on a regular basis, mm-hmm. then you actually start to retrain yourself to 
know that you're going to be there no matter what. And it can actually, it has this sort of second order effect on the system where the things that might've stressed you out or pulled you off course, you know, threw you for a loop. Um, otherwise, now they might not have such a big effect on you, not because you even worked with those things directly, mm -hmm. but because subconsciously in the back of your mind, you know that, okay, sure, you know, I might not prefer to go through this meeting or this experience or whatever it might be, but I know in the back of my mind um, that at three o'clock today, I'm going to be on that walk or sitting on the meditation cushion or drinking that tea or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And even if you don't have to, you know, even if you don't acknowledge that to yourself consciously, the brain and the nervous system starts to recognize that you have these like little oases of mm -hmm. uh, these little sanctuaries of, of mood elevation built into your day. Yeah. And that's actually, that's something we use at reorigin as well. And it's kind of built into this, this day framing, like journaling process where mm -hmm. we, we call it day framing because it's about, you know, setting your own picture frame around the things that you want to focus on that will mm -hmm. give you that good feeling. And this is a, you know, something that they do first thing in the morning and then last thing in the evening. And by having those two referential points, we found that people are sleeping better because mm -hmm. if they're, you know, having difficulty getting to sleep at night, oftentimes it's because of rumination, but yep. simply knowing that tomorrow morning, first thing, when you wake up, you're going to have this little oasis of positivity um, is sufficient for a lot of people to calm that stress response and allow them to get to sleep. Mm. And similarly during the day where they would normally become um, you know, overly stressed out about something, it doesn't seem to have that impact because in the back of their mind, again, they know that no matter what is going to go on today at 9 PM, I have this time where I know that I'm going to be immersed in this deep, you know, positive visualization or activity or whatever it might be. That's going to give me that, that positive, um, sensation. Absolutely. And I think, I think that's a great place to end this conversation. I think it's such on a positive note of, you know, that we do have this ability to create those spaces for ourselves and create this positivity in our life. And even when things do feel like they're out of our control, you touched on that, you're giving yourself that locus of control, right? It's instead of giving kind of the external, everything else going on, all that control, you're reclaiming it. And I think by knowing that you can create that little space for yourself is probably my biggest takeaway, right? Of this conversation, there's so much knowledge and science and different things that show how powerful and beneficial that can be, because that's truly, like you said, where the awareness can start happening, where the neuroplasticity can start taking place, where you can start becoming aware of the things that are happening within your body. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well put. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Ben, for coming on. It was a pleasure um, talking with you and you are so full of knowledge. I loved the conversation. <laughs> Likewise. I really appreciate it. And this was great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And for our listeners, thank you guys for listening. Um, as always, please subscribe, rate and review. Let me know what you want to hear about. Um, and then also I'm going to put all of Ben's information uh, where you can follow him and go and see, learn even more from him um, in our episode notes. Thank you for hanging out with me on the Abundance Alchemist podcast. Don't forget to head over and grab your free self-love activation meditation at theabundancealchemist.com and hit subscribe here so you don't miss a thing. Until next time, sending you so much love.